in 2018. I was like, man, everybody else is like doing all these cool things. I don't really know what I'm doing and I don't know if I'll ever make it. Last week, I saw I had a bunch of emails being like, congratulations, you're on Forbes 30 under 30. <laughs> If you are a creative in the entertainment industry looking for inspiration and practical ideas about how to take the next steps in your career, you are in the right place. My name is Rebecca Doyle and I work in film and television in Los Angeles. I learned so much from the ups and downs of the talented, innovative people surrounding me and I want to share those insights with you. Join in every other week to hear the break-in stories of people who overcame challenges and found unconventional avenues to pursue their dream careers in an industry that has no set path. Welcome to episode 21. I'm so excited because I read online that the overwhelming majority of podcasts do not make it past episode 20. So it feels extra fitting that we have an incredibly special guest for episode 21. Michael Ritter is a film producer and executive. He most recently oversaw the film and TV development slate at Street Entertainment, the company behind blockbuster films such as 2012, Independence Day Resurgence, and Midway. He was pivotal in closing over $280 million in financing for films such as Lionsgate's Moonfall and TV shows such as Peacock's upcoming historical epic, Those About to Die. Originally from Germany and of half-Filipino descent, Michael brings a unique blend of Asian-European perspectives to his work, seeking to foster genre-agnostic stories about identity and virtues to create intimate stories on an epic scale. He is based in Los Angeles and holds a bachelor's degree in film and television production from the University of Southern California's School of Cinematic Arts. As of this release, it has been less than one week since the news was announced that Michael made the 2024 Forbes 30 Under 30 list in the Hollywood and Entertainment category, alongside names such as Jenna Ortega and Noah Schnapp. We conducted this interview a few days after the news broke, and we dive into the entire process of getting on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list from nomination to the final round questions, how overcoming extremely discouraging rejections and failures was a part of Michael's journey to his highest achievements, and the one key factor to truly measure success. It's probably not what you're thinking. Let's jump into the interview. Michael, congratulations on making Forbes 30 Under 30, and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a little bit of a wild week. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so tell me all about this week, and then I want to hear all about how you got nominated for Forbes 30 Under 30, what the application process, review process was like, and what it looks like going forward. So, I mean, this week was just... I honestly had no idea when this thing was going to come out. They had emailed me back in August, you know, identifying me as a candidate for the Forbes on 30 under 30. No idea how, how they found me. Um, apparently, maybe someone submitted my name for it. Um, I really don't know who, what. I've actually been trying to figure out who it was. I've asked everybody and nobody has um, given up that information. Um, but... Uh, okay, well... Okay, I have a confession. I know who it was. Was it you? <laughs> yeah, it was me. I nominated you for Forbes 30 Under 30. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But also, <laughs> but also it was JP Petnato because they asked... Yeah, no, of course. But it was, all, but it was also JP Petnato because I texted him after I nominated you and thought, 
maybe it would it would hold more weight if someone with more experience nominated you. So I sent him the link and I said, this is Michael's birthday. Can you please nominate him? And he oh said, my so. gosh. I even called him and he said no. <laughs> oh, he did? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that means he, he didn't nominate you or he's just, he also had the same thought <laughs> I was, which is that you should focus on your achievement. <clears throat> Aww, but yeah, you. I guess now that you've already gone on the list, I'm okay telling you. But yeah, but it's also Michael because you spent on on uh, you were just talking about how you know turning thirty, and it was just so obvious that you were a great fit for the list. So I yeah, I hope you don't feel too betrayed because nope. I know you were looking for a while and I didn't say anything, but you didn't ever directly ask me, so I I don't think I oh my I definitely gosh. didn't lie to you about it. So. Oh man, well I think also you're the first like one of the first people I told when I got nominated. So for some reason I guess the <laughs> thing was like didn't even cross my mind. Um, and then like you know you were there like you know we were sitting together as I was writing out all this information that they asked for and whatnot, and. It was, yeah, you, you were literally there the entire time and like, for some reason, sitting right in front of my eyes. And I was just so blind. No, because, no, I think it was because you called me and you said, oh, I got nominated. And I just said, oh, that's incredible. And you kept saying, I wonder who it is, you know, and I wasn't going to tell you. So. <laughs> but hopefully you can rest now in your, in your search. Um, and I, I hope that's encouraging to people too you know you can nominate people that you think are deserving because at the end of the day it, it didn't matter who i was the facts spoke for, for themselves and your achievements spoke for themselves so yeah wow yeah. thank you so much um yeah that's amazing wow we've come full circle they reached out in august identifying me as a candidate um we sat down and we filled out the information um which is actually kind of funny because when you when you're like when i was like oh i don't want to like you know go click through this too early i like wrote it all in a word document and i it was like just the first page and like really got into it like like filling out all this information making sure like it like details as much as possible like all the accomplishments and everything that i've had so far and then when i was like okay i'm ready to like put this into the like form that they sent i was i then later on i realized there was like three more pages that i <laughs> hadn't actually like thought oh. about so i was like oh shoot no and i like you know, got closer to the deadline by the time I even finished that first page. I was like, okay, now i got to <laughs> quickly do the rest. Um, but anyway, so... Wait, wait, so yeah. just, to, just to back up for people listening. So what you're talking about is you got a link f that was sent to you by Forbes that said you have already been nominated and now we're seriously considering you and we'd like you to fill out this additional information. So that's what Michael is, is speaking about is the additional information. What were those questions and what were those answers, especially those ones that you really were trying to make sure were perfect? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. And to be honest, I don't even remember off the top of my head exactly what the questions were. <laughs> I mean, obviously there were the basic things like, you name position things you've worked on references and then it also like started going into um you know some of their personal details like your story how you got started i think that was very important to them as well um there were certain questions in there that were just like from a drop down menu like what kind of things you would like endorse or whatnot whether it's be like um trying to fundraise for like social impact or for political or um, climate things. Um, so those are, I think were just like questions to sort of like field your personality. Um, and the only, honestly, the only one that I actually really remember was at the end was like, is there anything else you want us to know? And it wasn't even much about like 
it wasn't anything specific. But I think for me at that point, it was something where I really wanted to emphasize that like this is something that one, I've wanted for a long time. But two, I feel like I've been sort of like working really hard for just without any sort of like idea of what's to come, you know. Um, I'm no stranger to rejection is one of the things that I mentioned. And that's, you know, I, you know, you and I went to USC together. I did not get in initially. Um, and that's like one of the things that I talked about, basically overcoming those obstacles of like applying to USC, applying to your dream school, being rejected. And then, you know, getting that rejection letter, seeing that there's like a little clause at the end being like, oh, if you want to like recon us to reconsider your application, like write us an essay. And I was like, yeah, right. That's never going to happen. <laughs> and I legitimately thought that fully that it would never, ever happen. And then like three days before the deadline to submit the, um, the appeal. appeal. Yes. Thank you. My mom was like, what the hell are you doing? Like you're just sitting here and you want this then why aren't you going to get it i was like well what's the point they're never gonna it's never gonna happen they say they overturned like eight out of 800 appeals um and she's like well if you nothing is gonna change if you don't try the worst thing that's gonna happen is you're gonna be in the exact same situation you're already in i was like damn you're right <laughs> you're absolutely right so i did it and you know, that's one of the things I talked about there in the end. The other thing is my current job, which actually led to all the opportunities, or I should say my last job, um, that led to all these opportunities and being able to work on like these big movies such as Midway and Moonfall, and then Those About to Die, I was also rejected from <laughs> when I first applied for the position. And it was between me and this one other person. They picked the other person. And, you know, it was I didn't get hired until about four months later because of various things that were happening. I was still followed up with them all the time to be like, hey, if there's an opportunity, um, let me know. And they, you know, obviously kept me in mind because of that as well. But at the same time, I was like trying very hard to find another job. <laughs> so by the time they came around to like asking me again, I, they'd be like, Hey, are you still available? We're looking for um, someone to fill the position now. I want, really want to be like, no, I <laughs> I got a new job somewhere else. I don't need this. Um, but they came back to me a few months later being like, hey, this job is open. Are you still interested? And I very begrudgingly said yes. But hey, five years later. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay. So to recap, you're saying you first got rejected from USC School mm -hmm. of Cinematic Arts and then overcame that rejection by submitting an appeal. And you're one of a few people to get selected to come in on appeal. And then the job that led you to being a producer on some of these movies and this upcoming series for Peacock that's about to die, that, that job was the job you were initially rejected from. And then they actually reached back out after the candidate who was selected over you was not selected. And I think there's a, a lesson about humility here as well, because you were humble enough to say, okay, yes, you rejected me the first time, but I'm going to take the second opportunity instead of saying, oh, no, you know, I found this other job. And it led to all of these, these credits on movies. So absolutely. Then you also went to a conference hosted by Forbes with similar themes. Can you tell me a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, so I went to the um, Under 30 Summit in Ohio in October. And this was well before, you know, I knew if I was on the list or anything like that, because basically in August after they 
um, had asked for this information. They went radio silent, and the only thing that they told me is, like, it'll be published in November. Nobody knows before it gets published. Um, so I was like, okay. Um, and then in September, they emailed me basically like, hey, we have, the, you know, our under 30 summit, which, by the way, in case anybody wants to know, it is open to the public. Like, you don't have to be nominated or on the list or anything like that to attend. Um and it was going to be hosted in Ohio. And I was kind of on the fence of whether or not I should go, you know. But in the end, I was like, who knows? This is the one time that I'm actually, like, a candidate for this. It could be really cool and interesting to try and meet other people who are going, people who are ambitious and um, go-getters from all walks of life, you know, because the list is not contained, obviously, to Hollywood entertainment. They have... Uh, it spans mm -hmm. all different industries. And, you know, I think maybe two weeks before or three weeks before the event, I decided, like, okay, maybe I should go book the thing. Went to Ohio. I was in Cleveland this year. And I think it's going to be in, like, two other cities in Ohio the coming years. Um, and it was really cool. It was really interesting to meet people from all different walks of life. It was actually quite interesting to me because, you know, being in Hollywood entertainment, I feel like here we're always in L.A. so insulated by the film industry that so many people we network with and talk to and everybody here is sort of like somehow related to film. And I went there and I don't think I really met anybody related to film, which was... Um, I mean, I met, like, a few people, but not too many. I'd met maybe, like, one or two people. And it was mm. just interesting to me because it was like, okay, obviously this is, like, a thing where you can network and whatnot. But I was, like, it was kind of refreshing to network with people who I would otherwise never have anything sort of in common <laughs> with. And um, so in that sense, it was really interesting just to sort of, like, expand my horizons. Um and it was also really cool because there were obviously the people who attended it spanned from people who are really accomplished and um, esteemed in their fields. And then there's also people who are really young and trying to figure out, you know, what they want to do and asking people. So, like, it felt sometimes like, you know, they had this app thing where you could, like, meet everybody who was um, in attendance and mm. schedule meetings with them. And they had, like, a meeting room downstairs. So, like... I was just scheduling meetings with literally anybody um, that messaged me or um, wanted to meet. And it was just interesting because there were certain times where I felt like I had things to learn from other people. And other times where I was like, oh, I was like sharing my experiences and my wisdom with other people. So it was it was a nice give and take. Awesome. So this conference was before the list came mm -hmm. out which it is very surprising to know that truly no one knows the list before it comes out because you hear with kind of festivals and things like that that if you're waiting for the public deadline as it were then you haven't been selected but for you truly you woke up one morning and you were on the list and had no idea literally and that was this week because um I was like, hmm, it's really getting close to the end of November. <laughs> I was like, maybe they're delayed. Maybe they're going to do it in December. I don't know. And last, actually, last week or the week before, no, last week, um, there was a time where I was like, you know, I was just checking in the mornings. I was like, hmm, is it live now? Is it live now? And then I checked one morning and I saw there was a link up for Forbes 
30 under 30 2024 and i clicked it i was like oh my god it's live it's live it's live and then i was like wait this doesn't seem right it actually was last year that somehow got i think they were probably updating the page <laughs> someone must have accidentally published it too early mm. before anything and then like within an hour it was taken down but there was no information on there yet it was all still from last year's list um but so i was like mm. hmm it must be coming soon because they're clearly getting ready to publish and so then i kept checking every day and then on what was it like tuesday what day was it i think it was tuesday um i woke up literally at like 5 a.m and i just checked my phone and i saw i had a bunch of emails being like congratulations you're on forbes 30 under 30 and I was like, no freaking way. So it was, it's funny because I like didn't have like a huge up and down jumping celebration or anything like that. I was just laying on my bed in the dark on my phone <laughs> like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and what has the reception been since then? Have people been reaching out to you? What has the, the post-announcement world been like for you? Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting. I feel like people from all times in my life have sort of like reached out and congratulated me which you know has been really nice um just it feels like this is something that spans beyond the industry like everybody sort of knows uh, like somehow Forbes 30 under 30 mm -hmm. so it's just like a nice um thing to, for people to understand what it is also right and then reach out and congratulate and yeah, I mean, everybody's been really supportive. Everybody's been really nice. It was funny because, like, it took me hours to even post about it. I don't know why. <laughs> like, I found out at 5 a.m. about it. I don't think I posted about it until, like, 10 or later. Um, I told my mom about it and my sister in the morning. And they're like, oh, my God, you have to post so we can share. And I think a lot of my family members shared it before I even did. <laughs> just because i don't know i was like oh i'm gonna go about my morning start you know um getting things ready for work and but yeah um it's funny actually someone from my high school um who was in my grade is now the like alumni coordinator and she reached <laughs> out to me right away being like hey oh my god congratulations is it okay if i share this on our social media i was like please by all means i mean it's public knowledge at this point um thank you so much for acknowledging i mean it means a lot to me but you know at the end of the day um the this list isn't going to like be the thing that one makes or breaks my career i feel like it's a recognition but it's also not an end-all be-all of anything so i always try to remind myself of that too it's like i try to enjoy the moment of this but it's also not something that's gonna be like an instantaneous life change, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, it's it's one of the fruits of your labor, mm -hmm. right? I am interested to see when we do our check-in episode in a few years. I think it helps to have kind of markers that make people feel secure in their decision to invest their time and energy mm -hmm. and financial resources especially. So I'm excited to see how you're going to leverage this um, 
to be able to show in just a couple of sentences what people who have worked with you for a long time know about you, you know? No, absolutely. So that's going to be really exciting. Absolutely. And, you know, I've already gotten yeah. some sense of that. There's, like, certain people who have, like, reached out to me just or, like, just responded to me faster that otherwise wouldn't have responded to me so quickly <laughs> as soon as the news came out. Like, there were, like, certain things or for projects where we're like, oh, I reached out, like, a week ago and followed up and then like maybe like 20 minutes after the announcement i get an email <laughs> not necessarily be like oh like mm. congratulations or anything like i mean some people would obviously still say that but it's more like oh you know to answer the thing that we were talking about previously or <laughs> yeah the people would just get back to me much mm. faster after that mm. i was like wow it does actually make a difference in how people perceive you Okay, so to kind of recap, obviously we're going to get into your path here and some of those achievements that mm -hmm. you wrote about and were able to explain that um, helped the Forbes judges identify you as someone that should be on the list. But in general, are there any tips that you kind of glean from both the conference and going through the process that you would advise someone in your shoes who's maybe considering um, applying or or going through that application process in the future, what tips would you have for them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a lot of going for as much as you can, right? Being ambitious and really working hard towards that and really reaching for the stars. I think one of the things that they said there at the conference, because they also had a thing of like giving insight into making it onto the Forbes 30, they say a lot of their people who are listers are people who commonly face rejection and overcome it, right? Um, people who fail and try again, um, people who um, just make it happen no matter what, and not necessarily make it happen to make the list, but make it whatever they are passionate about happen and making it a reality. And I think, you know, the this recognition is just more so confirmation of those like that type of Person, they also really heavily lean towards founders, which I personally had a little bit of a, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, interesting relationship with because I wasn't a founder. And then when they like told me, not told me, but when they mentioned it at the conference, they're like, you know, generally speaking, they do lean a little bit more into founders and people who are the entrepreneurs and the risk takers um, that they, I was like, oh my God should I have applied as a founder of my own company <laughs> or should I have gone in as like the VP of the, this uh, established production company, which I was at the time. Um, and so I, I had this like sort of like back and forth, but I mean, generally speaking, I mean, I guess, you know, they do lean into both. Um, obviously a lot of them are founders. Um, I was not a founder for um, the purposes of this list. So Obviously, I'm very thankful that I still made it regard, uh, regardless of that, but that is something that they take into consideration. And I think they really lean into people who are disruptors in industries, people who can make change, and people um, who don't take the easy path or don't have like a pre-built path, right? People who have no set path, if you will. <laughs> I will. <laughs> also, on that point, when you had found out that it would be beneficial to maybe have a company in your name. You then did create a company that had been on your mind for a while. That seemed like a good, a good catalyst. So can you tell me about the company that you started during the Forbes 30 under 30 process? Yeah, you know, when once they mentioned that, I definitely felt like, oh my gosh, this is definitely the time that I should start my company. Um, and so I did. Um, 
I formed a film television production company called Chiron uh, Studios. I was actually going really back and forth about the t name of this company for a while. Um, and this actually kind of goes back to my roots of why I even got into film. Um, so the name for my company is Chiron Studios and it's spelled K-A-I-R-O-N and it is a combination of two, um, Greek words, um, one being Kairos and two being Aeon and Kairos is, you know, the definition of Kairos is sort of like an opportune moment in time, the time to seize an opportunity and Aeon is sort of like this eternal timelessness. And so I felt like combining the two um, to, ha to tell stories that are both timely and timeless at the same time are really at the heart of the types of stories that I want to tell. And for me, the reason why Kairos in particular is such a meaningful name too is because Kairos is the name of the retreat that I went on in high school um that really made me want to pursue a career in film when i was in high school i was really debating you know i'm sort of like a math and science nerd um i'm not qualified to be like a scientist by any means at this point i've gone too far down the wrong path for that <laughs> um but when i was in high school i was uh, imagined like i would go into engineering like aerospace engineering or doing something along those lines but my high school did have a four-year media focus program and basically which high school was that it was providence high school in burbank um it's right across from the disney lot actually um so it was always very close to entertainment um but yeah it was, it was funny um and i mean it was a catholic high school um and well yeah kairos is a catholic yes retreat. yeah for those who don't know kairos is a catholic retreat um and it's funny because I don't even know if I really want to talk about what goes on there before people who have like who are planning on going on cars eventually. <laughs> so I'm not gonna no, say anything. I mean, I think the overview yeah. is it, it. It's a four day retreat, typically for high schoolers, um, that really seeks to affirm people's purpose and connect them with with those around them. I'd say. Is that? Do you think that's a good description of cars? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah, for for people listening who haven't who aren't familiar with Kairos, there's the, the impact of it is because you don't really know exactly what the programming of the retreat is. So I agree with you. We can kind of respect the mystery around that for people who haven't gone yet. But um, yeah, I also went on, on Kairos in high school. So I know exactly what you're talking about and led a separate Kairos retreat. So I'm glad that was impactful for you, even to this day. What was it about those moments on that retreat that made you decide to pursue film over some of those other interests? I think it was just a really cool and unique opportunity to sort of break down some walls and barriers and getting to see people that I've gone to school with at that point in time for four years in an entirely different light that I've never seen them before. Um, and then really getting a deeper understanding of like why certain people are this way or why people are doing this way or why they feel guarded or why they put on these masks and how everybody kind of does these things and sort of like acts out of like, you know, out of survival um, to protect their own mental health, to protect themselves. 
And I think that whole experience led me to having a much deeper understanding and like um, level of not necessarily forgiveness is the wrong word, but just being open to this idea that everybody, nobody is like trying to deliberately hurt, like everybody is doing the best they can, right? Um, and mm-hmm. for me, that was something that was just so interesting and a shift in perspective that I really wanted to explore people and characters and the psychology behind that um, through storytelling. Um, because to me, I feel like storytelling, there, there were two options in that. It was like, really, I study psychology, I do filmmaking, and filmmaking just sounded more fun to me. And it was kind of your calling. I, I met you that first year at USC. I yeah. feel like it was your calling there. Something else I want to highlight is you did make a sort of a sacrifice in deciding to go to USC and pursue that dream. I'm sure you could have started college earlier somewhere else if you had decided to pursue psychology, but instead you decided to accept the spring admission at USC, right? Yeah, yeah. So when I got, when I appealed the USC decision, you know, um, when I finally heard back, I did not, I got admitted, but it wasn't for the fall semester. It was for the spring semester. And at that point in time, you know, I'd already committed to another school. um, So that was a whole thing that I had to figure out. But then um, it was already too late for me to register for any community colleges in the area. And so I actually had to take just like a semester where I really didn't do anything, (laughs) Um, which was kind of weird. And it got really boring after a while having that much free time. Um, And... Mm. As an an 18 year old, yeah, yeah. Um, because everybody else was, you know, starting college and having all these exciting moments. And I'm like, you know, I'm just here. I went to a USC game in the fall just to be like, hey, maybe I'll meet people there. And I did actually meet some fun people there, but I don't think and we like added each other on Facebook. But I don't think I ever talked to them really much after that. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's kind of the experience. Everyone's welcoming experience. You meet 100 people. Yeah. Yeah. but, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily even think of it as a sacrifice. It was just something that I was willing to wait for, you know. Um, and it was easier be- to wait for it because I knew it was going to happen and I knew when it was going to start. Do you want to say what the other school was? Oh, I, I mean, I had committed to LMU. So the schools that I gotten into were like NYU, LMU. I couldn't afford NYU. Um, they didn't give me like any sort of like financial package. Um the school itself was very expensive. New York was expensive. Like, I just did not have the money to go. So yeah. even though I would have loved to go there, it just wasn't really a realistic option for me. Um, you know, my family, we don't have, like, a ton of money. Um, so it wasn't like any school was a possibility. LMU, um, well, Chapman I got rejected from, so that was not an option. And then LMU I did get into, um, and they gave me a pretty decent package, Um so that was the choice for me. It was local. I wouldn't have to pay so much for housing. And I actually had a decent package to be able to afford the school until USC came about. And I was almost fully prepared to be like, I'm going to risk all these, <laughs> everything and take out these loans. But thankfully, I didn't have to. Um, they actually did give me a pretty decent package of like, um, financial aid, plus mm. also scholarships to um, make it attainable for me. 
So at that point, and I asked just because I just released an episode on mm-hmm. student loans and uh, whether film school is worth it. So at that point, who was giving you a better financial aid package, LMU or Actually, USC, USC did, surprisingly, which I did not. <laughs> wow. <laughs> It was your yeah. calling. It really was. It yeah. worked out. I mean, they were pretty close, um, but USC did end up actually giving me a better package, which was very surprising considering they rejected me at first. So the first feature you produced was shortly after USC, but it was still through the School of Cinematic Arts. At the time, they were making features tethered to a prominent celebrity. Um, when you got brought on board, that celebrity was a- attached to the project, and then things kind of developed further. Can you tell me what happened next? Yeah, so, you know, everything was going smoothly the first few weeks, and then um, things changed, and for specific reasons, um, UC decided to cut ties with this person, um, and that actually led to us being the first project in the history of this to lose funding before we started the production. And because the funding was coming from the correct. Celebrity. Yeah. Um, and so it was an interesting sort of situation because they kept reassuring us that are like, no, 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 don't worry. Um, we're going to get the money. Just keep proceeding as planned, blah, blah. But, we didn't have any money to commit at that point in time. So I was like, okay, I'm going to continue building out this budget. We're going to continue like negotiating um, locations and permits and all that stuff. Um, and it sort of like got to a point where we're like, okay, like we really need to actually like, put down our deposits and start paying all these things we negotiated because otherwise we're going to lose locations. We're going to lose um, rentals. We're going to lose like everything. Um, which, at which point they told us, like, we actually don't have the money. And we're like, okay, so what does that mean for us? <laughs> USC came in and they were like, we'll give you the money, but we can only give you two thirds of the money. Um, so two weeks before we were about to start shooting, I had to really pivot and figure out how the heck I'm going to squeeze um, the entirety of this production in losing a third of the money right before and the producers and I like we put our heads together and we basically decided like hey like we will figure this out going forward but right now with the money that we have we just need to try and make it stretch to get us through production and it was a pretty up and down journey because there was also all these other complications because of how these ties were severed we also didn't we had to set up our own bank accounts because they didn't want us to run through their things and we had to set up our own llc and then but then they sent us the money which became another issue because (laughs) the banks froze the money that came into our accounts um because they're like what is this brand new company that just set up an llc that suddenly got tens of thousands of dollars sent to them out of nowhere so the bank actually froze our money for three weeks so we had to start production without having access to any of these funds (laughs) which was absolutely wild so i was in charge of keeping track of like everybody was using credit cards on their own personal account like their personal personal credit cards cards to pay for everything that's wild and i kept track of every single penny that everybody spent because i knew we had the money we just didn't have access to it yet um 
Until the bank released the whole... Yeah, I want to just give some context to listeners as well, just really quickly. This is... The reason it was through USC is because there are a lot of students working on it, and it's an exercise for those students, particularly a pool of directors who are selected to kind of work with each other on directing the project. So I just want to make that clear to anyone listening, because it's not as if ever on any other project you'd ever work on that crew members would be asked to sort of front this money on their own personal cards. It was just kind of very common to have things reimbursed as students and the the dynamic was a lot different. So I just want to make clear this is not a production that you've done kind of since USC or, or no. something through your company or the companies that you've worked no, for. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for that clarification. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was really interesting. And also for further context, the directors are the only people who are actually students at the time. Everybody else is basically post-grad hired um on it so we did pay all the crew um so Mm -hmm. um that was the first time actually out of school where i actually had to like you know do payroll and pay crew and people and all that stuff but yeah it was definitely a wild ride trying and everyone did get their money everybody did to get their money back um a hundred percent of it everybody got fully paid back um i was very that left it like a big weight off my shoulder because you know it was my responsibility to make sure everybody got paid back and it was all it wasn't a, it wasn't like a small chunk of change either but we knew the money was sitting there so that's the only reason we felt comfortable don't ever start production putting things on credit cards unless you know you mm-hmm. you know you can reimburse um mm. because it should never ever 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 come out of anybody's personal um cards um yeah totally so okay so then that became your first feature uh do you want to say who d- ended up distributing it yeah so usc actually really came through on this one so you know when when they gave us a budget but two-thirds of it we started production and we kind of went through it and usc in the meantime was looking um for other partners new partners to basically come in and finance the project and so they eventually came to warner brothers and warner brothers execs actually visited our sets they looked at our books um that was the first time i actually prepared a proper cash flow for a production which i'd never you'd never had to do for student films because student films shoot like one weekend two weekends like and you already had the money yeah it's not like you had you know hundreds of thousands of dollars to kind of like cash flow over a certain number of weeks or even months um and that was a learning experience for me and so we submitted all these things they liked our books they liked how we ran the set and so they actually came in and financed the project they gave us every (laughs) literally on the second to last day of production actually is the day that they um said that they would actually come through and finance it and partner with usc on it um, and they, we actually ended up with an additional 50000 beyond what we had originally budgeted. So um, considering that we did it for two-thirds of the budget for production, we had the other third plus an additional like $50,000 to um, get us through post, post, which was very nice and helpful. Um, Warner Brothers did not end up actually distributing it. They financed it, but they had the first right of refusal. Okay, so this film, I don't even know if we said the name of the film. So your first feature, Samir, originally had a budget that was attached to celebrity financing. That celebrity and USC, who was making the film, 
cut ties, the budget was slashed by a third. So you had two thirds of the original budget, got through production, Warner Brothers stepped in and gave you the final third for post plus $50,000. And that is how the movie was financed. Yes, exactly. Okay, so from graduating USC Film School without a job to Forbes 30 Under 30, what was that first job? <laughs> so when I finished film school, I was very burnt out because my last semester, I basically had taken an unofficial 26 units. And then I was questioning. <laughs> a full load is 18 units for anyone listening. And full time is, con- is 12 units. So he was taking over double the amount to be considered a full time yeah, student. That was just for us but that was the that was the semester that we did drone and i was doing the 480 sound at the same time um but drone he's talking about a, a web series that was funded through a class by new form digital it was a very demanding project we made three episodes in a semester yeah yeah and then i also sound designed a thesis film that same semester um but anyway so after that semester, I was so burnt out. I was like, I don't even know if I want to work in film anymore. Um, so I was mm. exploring what else I could do. And so I was like, well, you know what could be fun? Bartending. So I bartended for nine months after college because I wanted to, one, see if I would come back to filmmaking like really like desperately like want to feel like getting back into it like if i felt that calling back into it and two i've actually at that point had never had a job outside of the film industry um and so i was like okay if i want to be a filmmaker and a storyteller i feel like i need to know things more than just the film industry and i feel like bartending is a nice way to socialize with a bunch of people and hear stories from sort of all over the world and so i bartended at a karaoke bar in little tokyo for nine months tokyo beat okay so when you took this job as a bartender were you i know you said eventually you're thinking about going back to film so it's not that you were making a career shift with the intention of bartending for the rest of your life it was that it was an interim job that could help pay your bills while you figured out what you wanted to do next. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't necessarily a career change in the sense that I knew I wanted to bartend, but I also didn't know if I still wanted to do film at the time. So it really was like a moment to step back and reflect and see if I was actually still passionate about it. And I mean, I, I think we have some spoilers here <laughs> just based on the evidence in front of me. But w- did you decide you were still passionate about it? Yeah, it was actually, there, it became many fold. I actually, <clears throat> bartending became probably the one of the loneliest times <laughs> of my life just because, you know, it feels like such a social job and you're acting with so many people. But all the people that you care about are working when you're free and you're working when they're free. So then anybody, anybody had a birthday or if people wanted to get away for the weekend or do anything, those are all my peak hours to work and make money. So I like missed out on a bunch. And so I never saw anybody. I mean, not that I didn't see anybody. People would come to visit me at the bar, but I'm also working. So I can't like just like chit chat and like. Um, forget everything else Mm -hmm. around me. And so it was a combination of that and then also really desperately, uh, like, feeling like I need to have a creative outlet, which I wasn't having while bartending. 
that ultimately after nine months made me quit and I got back into sort of the industry working as an assistant to a TV director. I forgot about this. Okay, how did you land that job as an assistant to a TV director? So I landed that job because of an internship that I did in college um, at a management production company where I really learned to like... Circle of Confusion. Yes, Circle of Confusion. Um, where I learned really how to do script coverage, um, where I learned how to cover assistance desks um, and have two bosses at the same time, really learned to manage like the ins and outs and learn the lingo of um, the industry. And they actually just really, really liked me a lot for whatever reason. And um, even after my internship ended, they would call me back a lot of times asking if I could like cover assistant desks and everything like that. And, you know, anytime they reached out, I would actually do my best to try and accommodate. Even if while I was in school, I'd be like, Hey, like I always plan my school schedule to always have like two full days free, literally almost partially for that purpose. So I'd be like, Hey, like if you guys need someone, I can come in on like Tuesdays and Thursdays. And they like actually would take me up on that all the time. And I actually floated on and off with them for a few years um but so that tv director was a client of theirs and so when he was looking for a new assistant they had reached out to me asking if i was interested and i was like absolutely yes okay so you landed the tv director assistant job what came next for you did that help you fall back in love with film and give you the confirmation that you were looking for yeah, so the TV director job actually, that actually happened before producing Samir. And I actually left the assistant gig to um, produce Samir um, with my colleagues mm. there. What was that decision like? Because I imagine the TV director job seemed more stable because it was ongoing. So you had to make a, a tough decision. Uh, it really wasn't that tough. Um, only because, I mean, I have mad respect actually for this TV director, but in the situation, um, that I was working under, I actually never met him in person the entire time that I worked for him, which was, what? yeah, I know it's a little wild. Um, it was because right as I was about to start working for him, he got hired for this TV show and got flown out to location um, to start production, but the studio wouldn't fly me out. Um, and so I was in LA working, um, from his house and they were just trying to find things for me to do. And they were really nice and they kept me on for a while, but eventually it was just kind of like, you know, we're kind of running out of things for you to do at this point. And I was like, and this thing is coming up. So it was like a natural sort of mm -hmm. end okay. and a good point. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't so much a decision I had to make. It was just, like, a good timing, thankfully, um, mm -hmm. which I feel like I've just generally in life been very lucky with. Um, but, yeah, then from Samir, basically afterwards, I, again, wasn't quite sure what I was going to do next because once that ended, obviously I didn't have another job again. There was like a few small little commercials that I got hired to produce. Nothing like major, nothing like 
that would like sustain me for a long time. I tried to get back into photography, which I used to like a lot and just like, you know, was doing headshots here and there. But I also didn't realize, I mean, I knew I was undercharging people, but <laughs> in hindsight, I was like, why would anybody ever trust me to take their headshots for the low price that I was charging. I think I was literally charging people like 25 bucks for like an hour long shoot or something. Um, what? Yeah, but it was also not necessarily complete strangers. These were all like people that I knew. That's uh, what I thought. You were like in a portfolio building phase and you were charging that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was. But I mean, at a certain point I had photographed like dozens of not close to like 100 people and I was still charging that. And it wasn't like making much money and then from there i decided to work front desk at equinox because my friend worked there and she was like oh this is a fun job i'm like yeah that sounds fun um i enjoyed it mm. so then i went from producing my first um more line producing my first feature to working front desk um at equinox in santa monica um, Equinox is a luxury gym for anyone who doesn't live yes. in a major city. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I actually thoroughly enjoyed it because for a period of time there, I was like feeling lost again um, because I was like, man, everybody else is like doing all these cool things. I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, I definitely had several like little breakdowns where I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing in this industry and I don't know if I'll ever make it, what I, what's going to happen. Um, I felt like just like such a loser. Um, and actually working at Equinox, even though it was probably like one of the lowest level jobs that you could probably get there, for some reason it just felt like such a positive environment there. Everybody's there to like be a better version of themselves, putting in work and all that stuff. It's strangely... Like gave me a huge like um, boost of like serotonin, I guess. It, like just made me sort of like a little morale. bit happier and morale. Like it like really boosted me up for a little while there. Um, and yeah, I basically worked there until I got that next job, which was the job that basically led to me being able to work on all these movies and actually even worked at equinox for i think almost six months at the same time while start starting that other job just because i was like i really enjoyed working there um and i asked if they would let me just work there one day a week and they were like we don't usually do this but they liked me enough too that they were like yeah we'll make this exception <laughs> uh, i'm noticing a, th a theme here circle of confusion liked you enough to have you float while you were a student on your off days equinox liked you enough to bend the rules a little bit and let you work there one day a week so what was this other job that you took that you kind of left your full-time work at equinox yeah, so that that job was um, working as an assistant to producer, um, Harold Closer, who was my boss for many years thereafter, um, and very thankful to have started that job. But yeah, it was just funny because when I initially interviewed for that position, it was very close, but I did not, <laughs> I didn't get the job. Um, which it was funny because I was like, thought I was literally perfect for that position when I applied. Actually, a friend of mine, um, Justine, 
um, is the person who referred me because she knew his former assistant who was helping him find a new assistant. Um, Shout out Justine Barker. Barker, right? Yep. Yep. Shout out to Justine Barker. Um, Yeah. No. So she had referred me and she's like, I remember I was like in Hawaii um, on vacation with my partner at the time and some friends and i got a call from her and she was like oh my god these people they're like you know they're producers on like some really big stuff they're like looking for a new assistant um they speak german you speak german it's a perfect fit and i was like oh my god it is and then i interviewed and i clearly was not a perfect enough fit at that point in time um okay wait we need to we need to explain some things to listeners here so first of all the friend that referred you to this job was someone that you met at usc correct through the program yeah okay so it was a a lateral friend from usc and then you knew german because you were actually from germany i want to just really quickly explain yeah yeah i was born and raised in germany lived there until i was 10 and then moved to the u.s but for all those wondering, I am half German, half Filipino. Don't look like either. <laughs> and fully American. Yeah, true. Um, um, okay, so so then you interviewed for the job, did not get selected, and then four months later... Yes, four months later, they came back to me, asked if I was still interested, and I said yes. And that is honestly the start of where I think everything sort of like changed for me. Um, the first few months were pretty, like, you know, I was not there to try and do more than what was asked of me. I was never trying to be like, ooh, this is my opportunity to further myself and I need to prove myself, all these things. I was like, I'm here to do the job that I'm doing and I'm going to do the best job that I can at doing this. And I'm not going to try and weasel myself into doing more. You know, I'm not tr- here to try and like slime my way up i'm not here to um force myself into rooms that i'm not supposed to be in i was always very cognizant and conscious of being like respecting people and their time and their space um never hovering um ironically i mean i feel like i don't think i really said a word to roland roland emmerich for like the first six months that I worked there because I was just like, I am not worthy of being. <laughs> so, so again, just to give some context, Michael was working out of the Centropolis office, which also shared his office with street entertainment. So Michael was working as Harold Closer's assistant, who was at the time Roland Emmerich's producing partner. Roland Emmerich, for those not immediately familiar, is a very established director whose work includes Independence Day, Day After Tomorrow, and later Moonfall and Those About to Die, which we will talk about. But so that's who Michael is referencing. And and so you're just saying that when you went in, it's not that you weren't ambitious or and I want to mm-hmm. make this really clear. It's not that you weren't willing to go above and beyond for the job. You were just trying to be respectful in main, staying in your lane in terms of the job they'd hired you to do. Absolutely. And I would. Yeah, that, that's exactly that. I like always went above and beyond of the things that were asked of me. But I would never go so far to do things that weren't asked of me because I... Okay, that's actually maybe a bad way to phrase that because there are times that I would. But I mean, I think I wouldn't go so out of the way where it seemed like I was over eager, you know? 
Um, you didn't overstep. So you, you over-delivered yeah. on the job that you need to do, but you weren't overstepping, which can be... And just, yeah. So to clarify, you know, there was A-list talent involved. Roland's an A-list director. There were A-list actors involved. So it's just, it's it's having the professional discretion to know what to say and when and, and when to do things, right? So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I was just always like very much in my lane doing the work that I was doing. Um, and I think over time... People just recognized that, like, you know, I wasn't dropping the ball on things. I was really following through. I was, like, everything was, like, really, like, clean in the sense of, like, when something was given to me, it was going to get done. Um, which I'm very good at in my professional career, but not so good <laughs> sometimes in my house. Um, but... <laughs> So you met J.P. Pettinato while delivering the film Midway to Lionsgate. This is a film that he was a producer on, that Roland Emmerich directed, that your boss, Harold, was a producer on. And what happened next? Yeah, so J.P. Um, needed some help with the legal delivery. And so he actually asked all of the assistants um, who were working there, there were three of us, um, for help with the delivery and so he just went through and he assigned all these different um tasks to each of us and i was sort of the one that like followed through and everything because i was like oh like you know this producer on this film needs help like and it's being asked of me i'm definitely going to do everything i can to deliver on this stuff and so then i sort of got involved with jp and began almost overseeing the legal delivery with him and it took like several several months like many many months working very closely with like some of the top attorneys at Lionsgate and just kind of like getting like really thrown in the deep end and this is where my experience of working on Samir actually really came into use um a lot too because I understood obviously just like how all of this sort of comes together I've never obviously done delivery on a movie um of this size with like this much paperwork but generally speaking mm -hmm. I knew the things that go into it that was basically just sort of the start of me being able to prove to everybody around me that I was always going to be capable of handling anything that was going to be thrown at me and if I didn't know what something was or how to handle something, like I would figure it out. Which I think is kind of reminiscent of your time at Circle of Confusion and also, uh, yeah, just with previous supervisors, even at, you know, Equinox, yeah. Um, okay, so then, then you went on to work on Moonfall. So you came in to work for Harold as... They were wrapping up midway, and that was getting distributed. And then pre-production started on the next film that Harold was producing that, and that Roland was directing and that J.P. Petnato was producing, which was Moonfall. And you did get an associate producer credit on that film. Um, so uh, uh, your first associate producer credit on a theatrically distributed film with a $150 yeah. million dollar budget. What was that experience like? It definitely was a wild experience. I mean, that movie um, was a roller coaster um, and even getting made because, you know, it was an independently financed film. And we were, I think, seven weeks out from principal photography. 
prior to the COVID shutdown. And it was definitely a task to try and find a new bank willing to do um, the loans for the movie. And we found a great partner. um, And, you know, against all odds, we really got it made. And that alone, I think, is a feat to be commended. And I worked very closely with JP on it, very closely. You know, this is a, uh, a film where I got to work very closely with the producers on a much higher level. Um, so mm. that was both an incredible experience and an amazing learning opportunity. Mm. So just really quickly to maybe go over some of the things that you might have learned through that process. So, you know, financing structures, loan closures, especially with foreign companies, producing Mm -hmm. in Canada, where a majority of the film was shot, working with Canadian crews, U.S. crews, department heads, seeing kind of the the schedule breakdown and line uh, line producing budget of a $150 million film. What were some of those other things that you were learning for the first time? Oh, that's a great question. For the first time, it's interesting because I don't necessarily... It's funny because people would always tell us while we were in film school that all the things that we learn in film school are the same things that we'll use in real life, just in, like, you know, just the numbers will be bigger. And I do actually feel that was very much true here as well. Like, it wasn't like anything was particularly new. I mean, there are obviously, like, specifics in terms of, like, legal language or, like, numbers or how to handle, like, fin in, like, you know, certain agreements, but generally speaking i do think a lot of the things that i learned one both in film school and working on sets and other were very translatable and scalable to what i was doing here um i don't know how much i can go into specifics no no but there are some things in film school you're not going to learn how to close a loan with foreign countries or close a a bank loan or open a bank account in london for your film or learn about exchange rates because if you transfer a million dollars to Canada from Los Angeles for your production, depending on the exchange rate, you can gain or lose, you know, a significant amount of money. So just things like that, you know, not 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 going yeah. into trade secrets or No, of course. So but those things are not things that yeah, I agree. Those things are not things that you do in film school, but what you do learn in film school is figuring out who the right people are to ask the questions. And I think that's really the thing. Like, I'm not going to know all the time any situation I go into how to handle this. But I, I think the real skill mm-hmm. is being able to figure out what it is I need to know and who can I ask to get the answers. Mm. And that was basically relevant for me. And that's basically how I, <laughs> you know, made it through everything is just like being able to ask the right questions and navigating my path forward from there. Okay, so you started pre-production on Moonfall as an assistant, and over the course of pre-production, production, post, dealing with COVID, um, you ended up with an associate producer credit when the film came out in theaters. Yes. Okay. I also just want to touch on briefly that this was a production greatly affected by the COVID-19 pandemic and was also one of the last productions running, one of the ones that had the foresight 
to get insurance against COVID very early when COVID was still kind of a whisper of something happening exclusively overseas. Can you just tell me a little bit about the experience of going into the pandemic while in the middle of production on a feature film like this? Yeah, I mean, it is definitely a journey for, you know, obviously the entire industry was shut down for a very long time because of COVID. The whole world obviously was shut down. Um, and we weren't necessarily one of the last productions to be shut down just because we weren't in production yet. We were still seven weeks out from production. Um, but we were definitely one of the first ones to start back up. And so what was really interesting about that is by the time we did shut down, um, we didn't exactly have COVID insurance, but there was a way to file that claim of the shutdown that was given to me to figure out how to navigate and so um the most of the amount of money that we you know initially lost because of the shutdowns we were able to get most of that back it was a really interesting sort of process to try and navigate in sort of these unprecedented times Mm. Mm. so it was again kind of something you had to tackle by asking the right questions yeah, you know, um, I think nobody knew what was going to be happening at that time, and nobody knew when things were going to look like, you know, have better days ahead or, like, what's happening. No, Like, the entire world was uncertain. So it was an interesting thing where it almost felt like leveling the playing field in a weird way for me where I was like, well, nobody knows what they're doing, so mm-hmm. I'm going to keep doing and just asking the questions and <laughs> figure it out along the way, just like everybody else is doing right now. Mm. And then I know you can't say much about the next project that you're working on with this team. It's the Peacock series, Those About to Die. Um, but that's an exciting transition to get to work on a series after working on several features with this team and can't wait to see it next year. Okay, so now that you have founded Chiron Studios and it is your company that's going to be developing things you're interested in, what kinds of stories are you looking forward to telling? Thank you. Yeah, it's I mean, it's super exciting. I, you know, bring a unique blend of Asian and European perspective. So I really seek to foster stories about identity and virtues on like an intimately epic scale things that feel like i said earlier timely but are also timeless and fairly Mm -hmm. genre agnostic so like basically anything with like really deep resonant characters um facing insurmountable challenges looking forward to seeing all of the projects you're going to create through that okay so you went from a burnt out bartender and working the front desk of a gem to being on the forbes 30 under 30 hollywood and entertainment list for producing incredible movies and series just in the span of five years what would you say to someone that's currently at that spot that you were at five years ago never give up just you know um keep going there's gonna be a lot of doubts in your mind i literally a year ago at this point in time had another breakdown where i was like am i able of doing this um always push past yourself that moment of doubt i think when you have that you know you are aiming towards that right um trajectory the second you're questioning yourself what am i doing and can i even do this i think that's the time to lean into it 
almost even a little further and really believe in yourself. Mm. Is that because in your experience, the things that come right after those moments of doubt are your biggest breakthroughs? Yeah. Um, I feel like usually the moment when I feel like I'm about to give up is right when I'm up the cusp and the precipice of reaching the peak, you know? Um, and I feel personally like I've been very lucky that anytime I've had these little moments of doubts um, that I've gotten just these like, I don't know, little signs from, I don't know, the universe or whatever. I mean, all these like little boosts that just always came to me in the right moment where that just kept telling me just keep pushing a little further. Like anytime I had my doubts, they could be the tiniest things like someone who I didn't know reaching out to me being like recognizing the work that I do or um, just even someone who I don't even know just commenting on my work ethic or like feeling like oh like they like my personality and so they like for some reason believe in me or like me I don't know it is something where for me I think you just have to be able to listen to the tiniest of signs of things that keep you going can you think of any of those signs currently like are there any memories you have of of a specific incident of someone saying something to you that to them might have seemed kind of small and innocuous and to you is a perfectly timed boost there isn't any specific words that i necessarily re- recall off the top of my head that, that people have told me for example like a year ago i was like having a huge almost like close to breakdown and someone from a you know disney had reached out to me um completely out of blue being like hey like you could be possibly an interesting person to um, start a conversation with for um, being an executive here or whatnot. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily that I was like, ooh, this is going to lead to a job. But to me, it was just something like, oh, this like, is something where someone even saw me without me having necessarily reached out. Or, um, and maybe this sounds very privileged to say, I don't know. Um, but no. just sort of feeling like, somehow somewhere the work that i'm doing is getting recognized because as you obviously know i'm someone who i actually hate talking about myself or my accomplishments like i'm someone who likes to downplay um what i do because i don't feel like my personality and who i am is defined by what i do but rather how i like to treat people and i like to treat everybody with kindness and um full understanding as much as I can um and so I'm sometimes not the greatest at selling myself and so a lot of times I feel like you know my mantra is always like undersell over deliver and there are times where I feel like maybe my idea of underselling isn't necessarily doing me the favor of um furthering myself and so I think I feel very lucky and blessed to be surrounded by such a strong support network 
who recognize that I work very hard and who almost become the champions for me, like yourself. Like the fact that I just found out that you're the reason I even made it onto this list, Rebecca, is absolutely incredible. No, that's that's actually why I didn't want to tell you is because that exact exact sentence. Like it's not I just I, it's your achievements you, that yeah. But you're the catalyst to it, right? I feel like those are like two things that without each other wouldn't have led to the current result. So I'm very thankful um, to you and I'm very thankful to everybody in my support network that, you know, recognizes the work that I do and also champions me when my I'm very good about championing other people and like pitching them. I feel very awkward about doing it about myself a lot of times. (laughs) And so I feel you know, that is, those are the kinds of moments that I'm like, when things like that happen, where people that I've worked with, or people that I know, and they sort of just always give me that little bit of that extra push. I guess, you know, my mom was one of them with me applying to USC. Like, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here. Um, It would be... um, you know, getting rejected from the job with Harold, but then also having seeing that opportunity maybe come back to light like three weeks later, even though it didn't realize until four months later. Um, it's you, you know, um, in secret doing these things <laughs> um, to help <laughs> elevate me um, because, you well, know, you what I take from it is... Though. like. <laughs> Yeah, and that's true. I actually didn't even know how the process worked, to be honest. <laughs> um, so it was just, like, crazy wild to me. And, you know, I'm super thankful that you would even go through that um, and believe in me in that regard. And so I think those are sort of the signs of that I see and listen to and I think all of that comes from to be honest me treating trying or wanting to treat everybody as the human being that they are you know I don't think there's anybody that you know actually Andrew Stanton and I don't remember where he got that quote from but there was a talk that he once gave um, where he gave a line that really resonated with me. Like, there's nobody you can't learn to love once you've heard their story. And that's something that I feel like I learned during Kairos. And that's something that I feel like I carry with me through my entire life. And so I think that is also something that the things that I give out do come back to me sometimes in those positive ways. And for that, I'm very grateful. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, do you think that changes your perception? Because you've always been an incredibly supportive friend. Um, listeners, you can, <laughs> just as one example, Michael came and sat with me on the freeway until three in the morning when someone hit me and, and uh, totaled my car a couple months ago. He was just trying to leave the wedding and get home early. So you're always a very supportive friend. Is this something in you that because you know that a comment a small comment can be very meaningful to you. Is that kind of a motivator for you to make small comments to other people? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I feel like I always try to 
let people be themselves. I don't try to necessarily guide them or, I mean, maybe that's a bad way of saying it, but like, um, I don't try to force or enforce my ideals onto people per se. And I always try to uplift them and encourage them in what they're doing because I also know, I never know what anybody's going through at any point in time and any small things that I say can either mean the world to them and if it's a positive thing and it can also absolutely destroy someone's day um depending on what they're going through and so the same thing even happens from the flip side like if someone's having a terrible day and i don't know them um and they might be letting it out on me i recognize that it usually doesn't have anything to do with me it might not even be a reflection Mm -hmm. on that person it might just be the place that they are mentally right then and there and Mm. so i never take it as a thing where it's like this person is an awful person and obviously i'm not perfect there are times where like i let things get to me from both sides but i do generally try to you know be as supportive as i can of people and affirm the people around me because i know it can be extremely difficult navigating not just this industry but life in general and i think this goes back to the reason why i got into film i think there's a beauty in people just doing the best they can and recognizing that and embracing it Mm. yeah that's really wonderful and i'm glad that you carried that with you even since high school well into your work okay so now i want to get into our time capsule segment both to freeze this moment in time in your life and in your career and also make some predictions for the future so starting with the past if you could write a letter to yourself 10 years ago, what would you say? Ooh, that's a great question. What would I say to myself? Always treat people with respect and always treat people with love. Never force a situation and always keep going and never doubt yourself. Mm. Would that advice change if you were talking to yourself five years ago? So this would have been actually when you were in the bartending and and gym desk phase. Hmm. I don't necessarily feel like maybe it would have changed. I think maybe fall in love with the process and trust the process. Um, don't focus so much on the results. Actually, this is actually kind of funny because um, in high school, there was a line on our media teacher's um, whiteboard that said, um, don't, what, what was it? What was the exact word? I don't know if I'm going to paraphrase this, but basically it was along the lines like, don't worry or do things for the money. Do it because you love and the money will follow. And I feel like that rings true to this day for a lot of things that I want to do is I feel like if I do something only because there's, you know, money to be made or anything like that, I will find myself burning out before I reach the end, as opposed to really falling in love with the process and trusting the process. Um, So Mm -hmm. in that sense, I like really try to stay oriented with goals in the long term by working at it every day but I'm not trying to rush toward that goal in an unrealistic way where it becomes unsustainable for me. And 
the way I even think about that is like going to the gym, right? It's like I can't if I'm completely out of shape or something, I can't suddenly be like I'm going to be 100% in shape in like 4 weeks. It's like no, if I'm like okay, I want to get in shape, I'm going to go consistently every day, do what I can and start to fall in love with the process rather than push myself super hard in the beginning and burn myself up before any progress ever gets made. Mm. Wise. Probably a good mentality too with the industry because it's not as linear as progress at the gym, right? You can get kind of thrown yeah. a curveball at any given moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, moving on to the present. What is your favorite song right now? My favorite song right Spotify now. rap just came out the week that we're recording this, so you That's know true. I mean Taylor Taylor, Sw- Taylor Swift is my top artist of the year. <laughs> and I love it. I mean, I think Anti Hero is probably one of the songs from this year that I listen to the most. Um and probably it's funny, I'm like I have an interesting relationship with music where I don't constantly listen to it. I actually sit in silence a lot more than I do listen mm. to music. Um, but I do do actually really like Antihero, so that's going to be my choice for tonight. (laughs) Perfect. What is your favorite show right now? Ooh, what is my favorite show right now? Like, is it, does it need to be current current or just something? Um, no, if you could have discovered an older show, I know I definitely do that. Oh God. What is my favorite show right now? Um, I've been watching Mrs. Davis on Peacock, and I was very pleasantly mm. surprised. And actually, like right now, like literally as of right now, and it is a current show. It is probably my favorite. But if we're talking mm. about the canon of favorites, that's a different question. <laughs> <laughs> Why? What would it be if I said all-time favorite? Oh God. Um. I mean, you know, despite the ending, I still love Game of Thrones, so that's probably going to be up there. Um, mm. And then two other ones would probably be Dead to Me and um, and Fleabag. Mm. I see uh, with Mrs. Davis and Fleabag, there's some uh, lingering Catholic high school influences. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Um, maybe. Subconscious. What? yeah what is the best movie you've seen in the last year Ooh, um i mean everything everywhere all at once i literally well actually okay i everything everywhere all at once is full year and less than full year like 2023 would probably be barbie i really love barbie Ooh, good picks what food or drink item are you currently obsessed with? Ooh, hot pot. I've been making it for some reason mm. every day for the last, like, four days. <laughs> oh, at home. You make it at home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What is the best flavor of seltzer? Plain. Plain? <laughs> yeah. Do you I'm have European. a preference on right, I'm ha- Um... <laughs> No, not really, to be honest. I mean, I mean, I guess maybe this is a brand. Right? Um, I just use a soda stream at home, so that's mostly mm-hmm. what I drink. 
Um, I am very... Yeah, I'm not... I don't really have a strong brand affiliation. But I don't know. For some reason, plain sparkling water just does it for me. It always has since I was a kid. Mm. What restaurant is your favorite to go to in Los Angeles to celebrate something? Well, <laughs> this is a funny question because this wasn't, for some strange reason, um, the night that I found out about, you know, the Forbes 30 and 30, um, I just went with uh, my neighbors that live here that I went to high school with, some of my good friends and my partner. Um we just went to Cheesecake Factory because for some reason it's ingrained in my mind as a celebratory place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cheesecake Factory. Um, what is one expression in German you think everyone should know? Oh, God, I don't even know. Um... I feel... I, yeah, I don't even know. I feel like this is kind of a, a funny one, too, because I feel like I've like I still speak German, but my expressions and idioms are definitely all messed up because <laughs> my brain just like I translate so many idioms for, in my mind from English to German. And when I go there, they tell me it makes no sense. Like if you said just like rock your world or something and it just doesn't translate in German. Yeah. Or, like, literally, if I translate the phrase, like, there's no point. Like, if I translate it, like, verbatim, like, word for word, it doesn't make sense. Obviously, there's a phrase mm. for it. <laughs> um, oh, I see. Okay. You know, so... <laughs> it's 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 an interesting one. Languages are hard. Mm, yeah, they are. Even if it's your mother tongue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is the most recent lesson you learned? And this could be career-wise, it could be personal relationships, it could be a new skill, anything. Um, I don't know if this is the most recent lesson, but it's definitely a lesson that I think I continue to take to heart and I think that I will always have going forward and then that there's no task too big or small for you to do. Um, and that just means you can tackle anything that's given whether it's a obviously a large daunting task or it doesn't mean it matter if you're at the top of the world you can still pick up trash like you know there's mm -hmm. nothing too small ever for you to do we're all human um and by that i feel like everybody nobody is above anybody else mm. who would be dream collaborators for you All my lovely friends that I went to school with. <laughs> and I full heartedly mean that. Like I feel no, no, like I know. it's the peop it's the people that I already enjoy working with, the people who I'm happy around, the people with whom I can trust um cre like creatively and I know they can trust in me. I feel like it's having that safe space and I think being able to work with all of like amongst each other and being able to leave a mark in the industry and on the world that way would probably be, be my ultimate dream. Mm. Mm. I love that. Do you have any tattoos? I actually do not. Ooh. I've always Are thought about one. About? Actually a friend of mine has, 
Yeah, I've always thought about one, but I feel like strangely, I I'm not commitment phobic, but with tattoos specifically, I'm like I don't know if I'm gonna like it when I'm like 72. <laughs> yeah, yeah, relatable. What are your current interests or hobbies outside of work? Um, I love playing volleyball. Um, I actually really need to get back into it. I used to go every week and play at the beach, but I haven't mm-hmm. for a little while. Um, I very recently with my partner did a f- my first like adult gymnastics class which was kind of fun <laughs> so definitely gotta continue hopefully continue doing that um i love karaoke that was the fun part of bartending <laughs> what was your favorite karaoke song at tokyo beat um i love doing can't take my eyes off of you by frankie valley mm. that's always a fun one the classic um, who are your pets? Um, I have four pets right now. Two dogs. Um, they're siblings from the same litter. Their names are Bailey and Kalua. I got them while I was a bartender. <laughs> <laughs> and then two cats. Um, their names are Jackson and Milo. And they are both the sweetest, kindest, gentlest cats I've ever met and the cuddliest. Mm. Okay, moving on to the future. Five years from now, where do you imagine you will be living? Ooh. Minnesota, because that's the only place where I can afford a house I've recently learned. <laughs> <laughs> it's too real. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, um, I mean, who knows? Probably somewhere in LA. Um, I have legitimately been considering moving um, to Minneapolis and working remotely and coming in uh, as needed, but... um, To Minneapolis? Really? Yeah, I mean, it's... I I mean, I don't know how seriously I'm considering it, but I mean, I've definitely looked into it and, like, looked a lot into it, into, like, homes when I'm... Because it looks beautiful and, um, you know, my partner is originally... Or sort of from there. Um, Mm. And just exploring options. But most likely, you know, at the end of the day, being in the film industry, I'll probably be be somewhere in L.A. And if that's the case, I hope maybe the Pacific Palisades or um, Palos Verdes or something. Those are all great neighborhoods. Great neighborhoods. (laughs) Five years from now, is there anything you hope will have been invented? Ooh, yes, actually. <laughs> um, very randomly specific, but um, as you know, I was balding a few years ago, and I got a hair transplant, and so now I take a pill called finasteride to prevent the rest of my hair from falling out, and I would love to be able to stop taking a pill. So the thing I would love to be invented is stem cell therapy to replicate hair cells so I can just get another hair transplant and stop taking this pill. Mm. Very specific. No, that's a good one. No one has said that yet. So you trailblazer, you. Um, Rooting for that to be invented. Okay. 
The year is 2028. Who do you think is on the Forbes 30 under 30 list? Ooh. Does it have to be someone in their early 20s or younger? I'm legitimately stumped by this question just because I'm like, who do I know who's not going to be over 30 in five years? Someone else from Stranger Things. (laughs) I'm like legitimately going to think about this for a few days and it's not going to help for this podcast. (laughs) No worries. We're going to do a recap episode. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to have, for anyone listening, I'm excited to have Michael kind of co-host some episodes that I'm very excited about doing coming up the year is 2028 what is the name of your podcast Ooh, what how old will i be at that point 35 going on breakdown <laughs> <laughs> what if you want to give listeners a sneak peek into your soon to be launched podcast what can you tell us about that um you know with my breakdowns of approaching 30 and having all these self-doubts at this point in time last year I basically had started this idea for a podcast called 29 Going On Breakdown, where it's talking about all these like feelings that we have about this mental block of when we reach 30. Mm. Awesome. So definitely. So people are going to be dying to listen to this podcast. Where can they find you online to send you messages about how they are anticipating the first episode? Oh, gosh. Well, um, you can always find me on Instagram at MKRitter. Um, there, I also have a handle for the podcast that has not been launched. So if you really want to hear more about this podcast and listen to it, let me know by messaging at 29goingonbreakdown, 29goingonbreakdown on Instagram. Perfect. Guys, I'm counting on you. You got a DM at 29 going on breakdown. Where can people keep up with you and your work online? They can keep up with me on LinkedIn. They can keep up with me on Instagram. They can keep up with me on IMDB. Um, Soon they will be also able to keep up with me on my company's website that is still under construction. All right, we'll put all this information in the show notes so you can keep track of Michael on his various adventures. Michael, congratulations again on making Forbes 30 Under 30 Hollywood and Entertainment for 2023. Very excited to see everything that comes next for you. And thanks so much for taking time to share more of your story. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for freaking nominating. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. The least I could do. Thank you. All right. Here is a recap of some takeaways from my conversation with Michael. One, if you are facing rejection, don't let it discourage you. Overcoming rejection and trying again is a common part of successful journeys to the extent that it's actually sought after as a characteristic of those who make Forbes 30 under 30. Two, accolades and awards are nice recognition, but they're not going to make or break your career. Three, tips for those wanting to get on Forbes 30 under 30. Be ambitious, push past rejections. When you fail, try again. Make your passion happen no matter what. Forge your own path and consider taking a risk in founding your own company. Four, this is your sign. Nominate yourself or a friend who you think deserves it for Forbes 30 under 30. Five, everybody acts out of survival and is doing the best they can. Have patience and empathy. 
6. You can leave a positive impression on a boss, even at an entry level or day job, by being available, showing up with a good attitude, and having excellent follow-through. You may be surprised in what ways these relationships can come to fruition down the road. 7. It's true, much of what you learn in film school is the same as in real life, just with bigger numbers. You may not learn every practical intricacy of a production, but the most valuable, scalable, and translatable skill is figuring out what questions you need to ask and who is the right person to answer them. 8. Often amazing achievements are closely on the other side of your moments of doubt. The second you're questioning your passions is when you should lean into them even further. 9. Listen to the tiniest of signs, whether outreach from a stranger, words of affirmation from a colleague, or recognition from friends, to find the stamina to keep going. And 10. Your success is defined more by how you treat people than your external accomplishments. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of No Set Path. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate it and share it with a friend, especially if you can think of someone who might benefit from the knowledge that was shared here today. You can keep up with the podcast on all social platforms at No Set Path Show or on the website at www.nosetpathshow.com. Thanks so much for being part of this community and we'll talk to you soon.